0: Welcome to the American Democracy Lab. I'm your host, Alan Lambert. In today's episode, we're going to mix it up a little bit. Peter Castor, Chair of the History Department, will be hosting with guests Betsy Sinclair and yours truly. In this podcast, we'll be talking about an issue that's gotten a lot of attention over the last few years, political polarization between liberals and conservatives. As you'll see, anger plays an important role here. However, the story we tell is not as bleak as it might sound at first. We do discuss anger and polarization, but we also cover the dynamics that can bring people together. Some really interesting issues come up, and I think you'll really enjoy it.
1: Let me tell you a little more about our speakers today. Dr. Alan Lambert is an associate professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. His research is concerned with the interplay between justice, anger, and empathy, and the implications of these processes for political and social judgment. Dr. Betsy Sinclair, professor of political science, focuses on the ways in which our families, friends, and neighbors influence our political behaviors and choices. She's the co-founder of Magnify, a civic engagement platform. Division, partisanship, polarization. These are all terms that we're constantly hearing in current news headlines. Much of the conversation and argument about contemporary politics and social activity is about anger, Rage, etc. But these words are often used in vague and amorphous ways. So, Alan and Betsy, help us understand what anger means, particularly in this moment. Alan, let's start with you. You know, all emotions are complex, uh,
0: but especially anger. And um, Betsy will say more about this, I'm sure. But, you know, anger is no doubt, a deeply uh, divisive emotion. It's it's responsible for uh, many atrocities and and horrible things in the world. So there's no doubt that that's true. Uh, But there is a type of anger that philosophers and psychologists sometimes call moral anger. Moral anger is this idea that you perceive an injustice in the world, um, yourself or your in-group or another person or group has been harmed. And it's a feeling that you get that shouldn't have happened and it motivates you to do something about it. Um, Actually, Jonathan Haidt put this really well, and he said uh, something to the effect of, anger is perhaps the most underappreciated moral emotion. For every spectacular display of angry violence, there are many more cases of people standing up for what's right or angrily demanding justice for themselves or others. Thank you. So, Betsy, how do you
1: understand anger?
2: Peter, when I think about anger... I think about this as a pretty common experience that a lot of Americans are having these days. So thinking about about anger in the contemporary era of American politics is an emotion that really could not be important to understand what's happening in this contemporary era of politics. So if you look at data from Gallup to indicate how many Americans are experiencing anger in their daily lives, In 2018, 22% of Americans reported that they experienced anger yesterday, and that represents a nearly 30% increase even above 2017. Now, if we move beyond looking at just the feeling of of general anger to the feeling of political anger, which is the main area of my understanding um, for anger in American politics. So I am just interested in just how much anger have people been experiencing over time? And so if I draw on data from the American National Election Studies, which is the gold standard for how we can study American public opinion over time, and I were to look at the proportion of Americans who reported ever feeling angry at the opposing party's presidential candidate from the period from 1980 to 2020, I could look at that data and say, wow, You know, in 1980, when this this is the first moment when the ANES begins to track anger towards the party's presidential candidates, just under 50% of respondents reported feeling angry towards the out-partisan presidential candidate. And that number just skyrockets. So by the time you get to 2016, just under 90% of respondents indicate they're angry with the opposing party's presidential candidate. So when I think about anger, I'm thinking about these two things more and more americans are reporting feeling daily experiences of anger and in particular we're seeing as a source of that anger political anger where that anger is directed towards the opposite party
1: interesting i want to follow up on the points that both of you have raised so alan back in 2017 during a symposium on the rise of donald trump i heard you speak about the dual dynamics of anger and fear. Why don't you tell us a bit more about this and also about the traditional narrative of fear?
0: First of all, uh, political preferences are way more malleable than people think. So situational pressures and forces can play a large role in terms of whether people are quote right-leaning or left-leaning. Um, and part of that narrative, that, that part of the narrative is true, as I like to tell my students, um, political attitudes is a you know, is a convenient, if imperfect metaphor. It's a little like a rubber band. So rubber bands can be stretched to the right or the left, and you know eventually they snap back to their original positions, but they can be stretched. Um, so that part of the narrative is true. The other part of the narrative, uh, which is also supportive is that, yes, in the context of threat, especially terrorist threat, people do seem to show what's sometimes called loosely a shift to the right effect, which is shorthand for people adopt more conservative views, uh, in some respects than they normally would adopt. Um, incidentally, you find that in the United States, you found that after the nine 11 attacks, but you find that in other countries as well, uh, notably say Israel or France. Um, now here's where things get interesting. Um, For several decades, social and political scientists have assumed that there's something about fear and anxiety that makes certain aspects of conservatism, especially authoritarianism, more appealing than it otherwise would be. So what's the problem with that narrative? It's actually pretty simple. Uh, Researchers study threat and its effect on political preferences actually rarely measure emotion directly. They might measure it indirectly, but it's pretty rare that they measure emotion at all. So the role of fear and anxiety in these shift to the right effects after threat have been presumed not actually tested. Um, so yeah, so the it's an interesting hypothesis, but when we began our research, uh, we framed this as something that's interesting but had not yet been tested. What we're finding in our research is that anger plays the central role, not fear. And the basic story is this a terrorist attack um, from the perspective of the in group is almost by definition an injustice they attacked us they shouldn't have done that and that makes people angry it also makes people fearful but we find in our research is that um, when you're actually trying to look for the emotional dynamics that predict that shift to the right it's anger and the reason that you're getting that is that in many countries not just the united states It's the political parties on the right in the United States that would be Republicans. They're seen as effective, uh, what's sometimes called affordances. They are trusted to deal with issues of national security. And that's interestingly enough, that's true even of liberals. So putting all this together after terrorist threat, people are angry, and then they look for political parties, certain aspects of conservatives in this case, to make them um, uh, feel safer, but also more importantly, to do something about that injustice. Um, and here I'm talking about this sort of hawkishness and sort of get tough with terrorist approach that was became popular right after 9-11. And that's, that's a story that we're finding, is that it's anger that makes conservatism more attractive or more appealing after terrorist threat, because people see that political party, that political ideology as a way of dealing with that injustice and just... Um, Just as a side note, it should be mentioned that anger can shift people to the left as well as the right. When you prime people with different types of threats, say for example, environmental threats, makes people angry. And what do people do then? They look to um, political entities in their their society. In this case, historically liberals have been seen as the go-to party to fix environmental problems. Um, You find that for healthcare related threats, by and large, and and setting aside some um, complexities, we've been finding, in my lab with Fatty Ida, one of my former graduate students, uh, when people become angry after being primed with threat in the environmental um, sense or healthcare, um, aspects
1: of liberalism become more appealing. Interesting. Before we move on to Betsy, Alan, I was hoping you could uh, help us put this in a larger perspective. It sounds like you're saying that the desire for justice is really the key here and that anger is just part of that dynamic. Is that the case?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the big picture here is that anger is triggered by the perception that something in the world is not right. That something happened that shouldn't have happened. And anger is a response to that perception. And then once uh, anger is activated, and by the way, that's part of the approach system in the brain. It's the only negative emotion that's part of approach. And it motivates people to reestablish a sense of justice. So without anger, we would hear about, for example, you know, Beatings of an innocent suspect, or somebody has been mistreated by the police. And without anger, we would say, oh, huh, that's interesting, and we would turn our attention elsewhere. It's anger that motivates us to do something about that, and it brings people together to do something about that um, injustice. Now, I want to just clarify, um, no one is saying that anger is the only reason that people come together. That would be absurd. Other emotions, certainly positive emotions, joy, happiness can bring people together. Uh, but the part that I find interesting is that, you know, anger is a double-edged sword. It can bring people together um, to solve a, um, an injustice. Um, it can also split people apart um, and it can lead to greater uh, divisiveness in, in our
1: culture, in, in including but not limited to politics. I see. Those are great points. And what I'd like to do now is turn over to Betsy and let's talk with her a bit. Um, We've talked a a lot about anger in the podcast so far today. And Betsy, you were talking about the emergence of political anger. I was wondering what you can say about the social consequences of political anger.
2: Well, Alan's research really illuminates the relationship between anger and participation. And we see that consistently in the political world. So if you were to look at modern campaign ads, nearly half of all campaign ads in the modern era use anger. And that's because candidates know, just as well as the scholarly community does, that anger ignites participation, whether that's protests or voting. But there are real problems with anger. And I think to see a broader view of that, I'd, I'd recommend you read a book from one of our recent WashU Uh, postdocs named Stephen Webster, who's written a really extraordinary book titled American Rage. But I want to talk about one specific kind of political anger, because that's where we see that political anger is one of the key drivers of social polarization in American politics. And so when I think about political anger, I think it adds on to the kind of social polarization we have. I think these days, people are pretty well aware that If you are with someone who is an ardent, you know, has ardent interest in politics, it may be really hard to talk to them if you have differing political opinions or attitudes. And so, with two collaborators, Elizabeth Connors and Stephen Webster, we've written a paper where we try to understand the extent to which political anger amplifies these divisions. And so, we ask people, we ask about 3,500 Americans who self-identify as either Republicans or Democrats to write about a time where they were very angry with the opposite party. And we randomly assigned the respondents to either write about that or something that's completely orthogonal to politics. We ask them to write about what they had for breakfast in the morning. And then we ask those two groups of people, the breakfast versus political anger group, how they feel about different kinds of, of engagement with cross-partisans. And what we find is actually really disconcerting. And so when we're looking at our data, we see that, um, for example, there's a tremendous decrease when you're feeling that moment of political anger about whether or not you'd take care of a cross-partisans um, you know, house when they were on vacation. So if you were, you wouldn't suddenly you wouldn't go water their plants, you wouldn't pick up their mail. Um, And you wouldn't even really necessarily do a favor for them if they asked you to. So these moments of anger, they have these personal divisions, they might ignite participation. And like Alan said, maybe that's helpful as a society to remedy a wrong, but they cause these big social schisms in ordinary life. Um, And so it makes it harder to maintain friendships with cross-partisans, um, and we've seen some of this, It would be harder to date a cross-partisan or um, have coffee with a cross-partisan. So these very simple things that we know tie people together. It, there are real effects of anger on social polarization.
1: Wow, so it, it sounds like your research makes it sound like democracy is really in trouble, but I know the, the bulk of your research is on networks and participation. And I was wondering what your research says about how to increase political engagement.
2: So anger is one emotion that we know drives participation, but as anyone who survived junior high knows, social pressure is real. And so the bulk of my research actually looks at how it is that we can leverage the networks in our within our families, friends, and neighbors to generate civic participation. Um, and so through that lens, you could really say, well, you know, I'm very likely to participate in doing something to, you know, pick up recycling or volunteer to help st louis county vaccinate its citizens or um, go to a local city council meeting if i know my friends are going if they know i'm going um, and if i can use the kinds of social pressure nudges that we know are effective to generate participation and so it's a different way to to illuminate the relationship between you know social ties some of which generate anger but some of which really generate like, you know, these feelings of real group membership to generate participation in a positive way. And that's what my research is working on now.
1: And that's really interesting. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your your app, Magnify, and how that's part of this process.
2: Magnify is the most exciting project I have worked on in my academic career thus far. Magnify is an engagement app that leverages the frontier of social science research to make it fun, easy, and social to participate in building better neighborhoods, communities, and local governments. And we give people a platform where you could think of it as a civic Fitbit. Um, People earn points for participating, they get kudos for participating, and it makes it fun to these social things that we know are essential for building communities that work together. So our idea is for people to collaborate on projects. And that then at the end of the day, because of those collaborations, we should see the exact opposite of what I'm finding for the effects of anger and social polarization. We could say, well, what's the effect of civic collaboration? We should see a decrease in social polarization. So you should be more likely to water your neighbor's plants If you've collaborated on building a better crosswalk in front of your house, those kinds of actions. Um, So systematically, Magnify provides people an avenue to do social good using the social science tools that we know make people's lives better.
1: I see. And that partly answers the next question I was going to ask, which is I'd really like to get uh, the two of you, Alan and Betsy, talking about some questions that both of you are engaging here. And the first one I wanted to ask you, which builds off what you've been saying is what are the dynamics that bring people together to make change. You've hinted at that in both of your comments and I want to build off that a little bit. Betsy, you've talked about how Magnify does that. Alan, you've talked about what motivates people. And I was wondering if you have any other thoughts on what sources um, can can motivate people to bring about positive change. Alan, let's start with you. You know, as I said
0: earlier, you know, anger is a you know, it's, it's a powerful emotion. It can work for social good. It can work for social evil. Um, but the, in a much larger sense, as you put it, you know, the question is what brings people together? Um, and I think prob- arguably even more than emotion, the more fundamental question is do they have a common goal? Um, and when that's true, when people have common goals, and, and unfortunately, I think that's more rare than we would wish. If they have a common goal, then there are certain circumstances where anger can bring people together. And, but you know, part moving beyond anger, there is even a larger issue of um, people are perceiving events, people and groups in their world, and they want to make a change. They want to make a change in their own life. They want to make a change in their in-group, or they want, want the out-group to change in some way. Um, it would be nice if there were a simple answer to the question, what brings people together to solve problems? And unfortunately, um, it's not a simple answer because it depends on the context. And, um, if I had an answer to that question, I would be, (laughs) be rich and win the Nobel prize. But, um, it's,
1: uh, it really depends on the context. I see. I see. Betsy, is there anything you'd like to add to that?
2: Yes. Yes. When I think about the social science for what brings people together, I think about a, a theory which we call the cycle of intimacy. And it, it's an understanding of how people learn to collaborate and really to build social capital. And you see it working whether or not you're a Peloton bike rider or you're engaged in home sales, cosmetics, or you're donating to a political campaign. And it's one of the theories that we've used to build Magnify. So, let me tell you about the three things you need for the cycle of intimacy. First, you need to express a common affinity group. So, you need to say, we're all part of something, whether it's we're all friends of Alan's, or we're all members of this company, or we're all Peloton bike riders. Like, we're all something together. And the second thing you need to do is take an action. And what's surprising about this moment of action is it actually doesn't matter too terribly much what the action is, as long as it's a common action we take together. So you can see corporations take everyone out on a retreat and you do trust falls and rope courses. Or home sales, you might play a game. You might, if you're the Tupperware company, you do silly things about what you might put in that Tupperware. Um, You know, you might ride a stationary bike inside your house. It doesn't actually matter too terribly much what the action is, so long as you're doing it together. So for Magnify, what we're asking people to do is civic engagement, because we know that makes better communities. We care a lot about that, but most people don't actually care too terribly much about politics. They care about their friends and they care about their families and they care about the people around them. It's why you see cycles of political anger in surveys. It's not a constant, it rotates and varies because the things that really illuminate people are the people. And the third thing you have to do in the cycle of intimacy is you have to have a moment of praise. So you have to have a way to give kudos to the people on the leaderboard or to cheer for the people who have participated. Or in our case, we give points to people like a civic Fitbit for saying thanks for participating. And if you can do do those three things and you look at what remains, whether you've solved a civic problem in your community or you've just finished riding a stationary bike, people have a moment where they feel connected. And you can see you know, the shadow or the tracing of what's left here is actually social capital. And I think that's one of the really remarkable things about how we understand people as human beings, as a social species, and how we understand how it is what we bring people together. It's that cycle of intimacy. It's affinity, action, and praise.
1: So I wanna come back to a point, Alan, that you mentioned earlier, which is that anger is really a double-edged sword. It can be motivating, but it can also be corrosive. And I was wondering if the two of you have any, uh, any as we reach the conclusion of our conversation today, I was wondering if the two of you have any additional comments you wanna make about that relationship between these different facets of anger.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Peter. I should just mention that, you know, a large uh, factor in this dynamic is empathy, is that, you know, when we hear about injustices, we are feeling, um, often feeling bad about the other person's predicament or about their misfortunes. It's anger, as I tell my students, the difference between anger at and anger with so you're angry with the other person and by some definitions of empathy, that is by definition an empathic response. your friend is feeling angry and you feel angry with them. Um, and that's essentially a really important part of empathy of the other person has a sense that you're with them that they uh, the other person is feeling the emotions that you're feeling. That's my take on moral anger. It brings people together and the reason it's bringing people bringing people together, is that they have a sense of empathy, of shared experiences that the other person feels like that person is in their corner and they have a common goal. So that's how I see the connection between anger, empathy, and perceptions of injustice.
1: I see. That's really interesting. Betsy, is there anything you want to add to that?
2: Absolutely. There are two really different but famous papers in political science that illustrate the role in which Um, understanding others generates different political attitudes. And I want to highlight those because I feel like that empathy is the antidote to anger. So what we've talked about throughout this podcast is the ways in which anger both predicts participation, but it also really limits the capacity of people to be socially engaged in meaningful communities with others, particularly others who are different. And that's really disconcerting for those of us who care deeply about participatory democracy. So if I were to talk about these two different papers, I wanna explain how empathy happens via action. In one paper written by Ryan Enos, he looks at the extent to which people will feel more and more anger towards an outgroup member when they see them on a train so he monitors the extent to which people will have um, anti-immigrant sentiment if they're sitting on a train, hearing people speak in another language. And that's really disconcerting. But note in this first paper, they're watching others. They're not engaging. And in the second paper by Brookman and Kalla, canvassers go door to door, knocking on doors, and they talk for a few minutes, about 10 minutes, with people about... Um, about increased understanding for transgendered politics. And at the end of this short conversation, where people are very real with each other, they open the conversation by saying, can we talk for a few minutes about a time you were treated differently? We find those short conversations have durable impact on people's attitudes six months later. And that's just a remarkable thing to think about. So when you think about anger severs people, what happens, these kinds of radical empathy moments, when you engage in conversation with others, you actually have the capability of having meaningful change. And so when I think about what you, the listener, could do in your own communities to make the world a better place, it's to take a moment to really engage with someone you care about and to think about how it is you can better understand each other and express empathy and perhaps take common action together but that that is the antidote for these kinds of divisions that we're seeing in American politics today.
1: I see. Betsy, that's a great point to close with. I want to thank both of you for being here today. Look for our third episode when Alan will be returning to his host's seat, and he'll be tackling a new issue with great guest experts, including David Cunningham from Sociology.